Good evening, everyone. Welcome to LSE for tonight's event, Yemen, a war for the future. Uh, my name is Robert Lowe, and I'm Deputy Director of the Middle East Centre here at LSE. Thank you all very much for coming out tonight. Um, thank you for not being detracted by the event downstairs on the US elections, and indeed choosing Yemen. We are um, here for an hour and a half tonight. We have three speakers. Um, we'll have a fairly informal uh, format to tonight's event. Um, with a fairly fluid flow of um, information, some interjections from me, and then following that we hope lots of interjections from you, questions and comments from the audience. We will have plenty of time for that um, after our three guests have completed their remarks, which should take about 40-45 minutes. Um, please put your phones on silence, and I need to let you know that this lecture will be recorded. Um, so a very warm welcome to our speakers. Firstly, on my right, Ginny Hill. Uh, Ginny is a visiting fellow here at the LSE Middle East Centre. Ginny is also a writer and an independent consultant who has covered politics and conflict in Yemen for more than a decade. Ginny is the founder and the former convener of the Chatham House Yemen Forum, and she recently served on the United Nations Panel of Experts on Yemen in 2015-2016. Welcome, Ginny. And then we have Bara Shaban, who is a Yemeni activist and works with the human rights organization Reprieve. He investigated drone strikes across Yemen between 2012 and 2015. And he also served as a member of Yemen's National Dialogue, a body in charge of reviewing Yemeni laws and drafting its new constitution. And he helped in running a media center in Sana'a's Change Square in 2011. And on my far right, we are delighted to welcome Helen Lackner, who is Research Associate at the London Middle East Institute at SOAS. And Helen has worked in all parts of Yemen since the 1970s and lived there for close to 15 years. Helen has written about the country's political economy as well as social and economic issues. She works as a freelance rural development consultant uh, in Yemen and elsewhere, and she is currently writing a book on the background to the Yemeni crisis, which will be published <coughs> next year, 2017, and it's entitled Yemen in Crisis, Autocracy, Neoliberalism, and the Disintegration of the State. Um, Helen also edited a book which Saki published in 2014, which uh, is entitled Why Yemen Matters. So a very illustrious panel. We have lots and lots of knowledge and wisdom on Yemen, so please make good use of it here tonight. So, I think those are all the intimations and formalities. Ginny, would you like to kick off? Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for hosting the event. Um, I, I will to start by saying that the report uh, was commissioned by the Remote Control Project, which is uh, looking at changes in patterns of military engagement. And we, we wrote this as a trends in conflict paper, looking at the use of special forces and capacity building for regional partners and the use of drones. So we chose to highlight the way that Western powers have established different patterns of cooperation with different partners inside the coalition. So on the one hand, you have an increase of arms transfers and technical cooperation to Saudi Arabia. But on the other hand, you have a much longer-term strategic process of engagement with the Emirati Special Forces. Um, and they've been, American Special Forces have been working with the Emiratis over the last decade. And this is the first time that they have taken the lead on the ground in an operation. Um, so the support to the Saudis has really attracted a lot more media attention, but we think the relationship with the Emiratis is something that may have more impact over the longer term. And the other thing that we chose to highlight in this paper is 
to tr highlight the, the, the drivers of conflict inside Yemen itself, um, including the decline of oil production over the, well, since 2002, um, the unmanaged transition to a post-oil economy, and the failure of previous state-building efforts, as well as the resilience of President Saleh's former patronage networks inside the country, and, the, and also the con continuation of intense rivalry between elite factions inside Saleh's regime. So while multiple external players have intervened um, to support their preferred allies and change the nature of the con con conflict itself, we argue that the original drivers are basically domestic. Um, uh, in terms of Western support to Saudi Arabia, we, have, we looked at uh, the statistics going back to the beginning of the Obama presidency. So between 2009 and 2015, the US and the UK together supplied about three quarters of Saudi Arabia's arms. Um, since, since the beginning of the current uh, Saudi-led air campaign, additional deals have run to billions of dollars, and I'm sure you've all seen uh, the figures in the media. Um, Britain has sold around 3.7 billion in new arms since March 2015, and have been multi-million dollars from the States, with more in the pipeline. We, we used data that was available on uh, the arms transfer database of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, and we added up all the statistics on arms sales since the start of the Obama presidency. Um, so Riyadh is the largest single customer for American arms, and the US is Riyadh's largest arms supplier, accounting for 43% of market share. Um, British sales account for about 34% of market share, in Saudi Arabia, but account for 45% of UK arms sales. And those statistics will have increased since uh, over the course of the last 12 months. The US is also the dominant arms supplier to several other members of the coalition. And taken together, US arms exports to all the coalition members together account for 25% of US global sales. And in addition, on top of that, there are various commercial agreements that support the use and maintenance of the weapons that are sold to coalition countries. So we tried to really situate the current conflict in the context of the political economy of the Gulf arms market. Um, we did most of this research over the summer, and things have moved on a bit uh, over the course of the last month or two months. Um, you'll be following the headlines about the targeting controversy and UK sales to Saudi Arabia. Um, obviously there was a bombing at a funeral hall in early October which killed about 140 people and that's created a lot of very negative headlines and we saw various parties hustling to keep that story under control. Um, I mean, in summary, the UK government says that it has advisors in the targeting room in Saudi Arabia and that the Saudis are following responsible procedures. But then how, is it, how can this be when there are such high numbers of civilian casualties? Uh, there was a parliamentary debate in the House of Commons on the 26th of October. This is the Hansard uh, hard copy of the debate itself. Um, Emily Thornbury, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, made uh, an intervention in that debate, and she made a distinction between uh, static targeting, a uh, control room in Riyadh where British and American military advisers are supporting the Saudis and where the Saudis are hitting static targets like military installations um, and where, according to British advisers, they're following the cor correct procedures. But Emily Thornbury made a reference to a second control room which she believes does not have Western advisers and where they're using dynamic strikes.
that means responding to live intelligence feeds on the ground. It's very hard for even mature military institutions like the American Army to deal effectively and sensitively with dynamic intelligence. And the Saudi military, um, if we describe here in this paper, has really been um, building its effective capability over a much shorter time frame. It does not have mature institutions, and the risks are very high. Um, there's going to be, um, well, the, the judicial review into UK arms sales is going to be held in February. So a, a, lot of that, a lot of new information is going to come to light in the course of the judicial review. And the British government's position is to wait until the outcome of that review. And in the meantime, they are not supporting any UN-led independent investigations into the allegations of uh, violations of international humanitarian law. Uh, we also we looked in a little bit more detail as well at Western support to the Emirates. Um, Emirati special forces deployed in Libya and Afghanistan with American special forces, but Yemen is the first time they've taken the lead on the ground. Um, they successfully took Aden from Saleh Houthi forces in the summer of 2015, and they also took back the Makalla, the southern port of Makalla, uh, earlier this year, and they have green zone bases in both of those cities. Um, the Emiratis are the only members of the coalition that actually have their own boots on the ground and the only ones that have the capacity to engage with local actors. Um, in the paper, we set out a kind of, we do a conflict analysis looking at the way in which the Saudis and the Emiratis are working in very different ways in different parts of the country. And Bara is going to speak in a little bit more detail about that. That's really great. Thank you. Would you like to give any context? Would that maybe be helpful? We, have, we probably have a mixed audience here tonight in that some people will know an awful lot about Yemen, some may know a little, some may not know very much. Would you, I mean, you, you can knock this off very quickly. Would you like to give just maybe two or three minutes on the background to where Yemen is today from maybe 2011? Uh, well, through it. sure. I mean, many. Uh, so Ali Abdullah Saleh was president for uh, 33 years. He... Um, had been concentrating power in his own family network uh, in the years leading up to the Arab Spring or street protests in 2011. That upset the internal power balance inside the Yemeni regime. So in the period from around 2006, maybe the early 2000s, until the end of that decade, there was increased internal competition inside the regime. When the protesters came out onto the streets in 2011, the regime divided openly and the international community came in and supported a transition arrangement that saw Saleh given an immunity deal in return for standing down from power. So he handed power to his deputy, Hadi, and he stayed as head of the former ruling, well, the ruling party, the General People's Congress. He remained inside the country. His loyalty networks inside the military continued his close friends and business partners retained control of much of the economy and he still had extensive patronage networks inside the political system. Um, his rivals, through their own proxy networks, came into government in a power-sharing arrangement that gave them 50% roughly share... Well, it was a 50-50 power-sharing agreement in Cabinet and many of Salah's rivals had their proxies inside that power-sharing structure. And his... Replacement Hadi oversaw a process of military restructuring, which removed many of the key generals and commanders, but did not remove the power base that existed underneath them. And they, those loyalty networks essentially remained intact, and Saleh was able to call on them over time. Um, 
he also had he also sponsored the national dialogue process, which Barrow was part of, which was a national consultation <coughs> exercise designed to make recommendations to inform the drafting of the new constitution. And Saleh basically sat this whole process out quietly, building up alliances. And when the national dialogue finished, he partnered with the Houthis, and the Houthis came to Sana'a and put pressure on Hadi to make some concessions initially, and then eventually seized control of constitutional measures themselves. And it was that process, that move, that it encouraged the Saudis to start their air campaign in March 2015. Thank you very much. That's very useful. There are lots of other strands to go into, but perhaps issues like the US, Iran, the UN, we can come to you later. Maybe this is a nice point, Bara, for you to come in and perhaps take up the GCC involvement and a couple of other areas I know you'd like to touch on. Yes. Um, so um, uh, part of what I think is um, an always an important uh, side of the um, situation in Yemen or studying and understanding what's happening in Yemen is understanding the uh, Yemen-GCC um, uh, Yemen relations, um, so, which is not just um, a new phenomenon. Uh, the Yemen-GCC like relations go back uh, many, uh, many decades, and mainly um, um, if I would if I would begin with the with at the time of the 70s and the 80s, um, the uh, most of the Yemeni people um, had um, had uh, had the access, let's say, to the uh, GCC labor market, and uh, during the um, the time of the president, um, the former president Al Hamdi, which was right before uh, uh, Saleh came to power. He managed to direct most of the money coming from the uh, um, uh, Yemeni labor working in the, uh, in the Gulf, specifically um, or mainly Saudi Arabia. He managed to direct most of that uh, money uh, to go through the central bank. This revived the um, economy or at least flourished the economy uh, and made, um, uh, uh, created a lot of uh, job opportunities and made, uh, made uh, at least there was a period of, I would say, Good relationship between uh, Yemen and the and uh, and the rest of the uh, rest of the Gulf states. Uh, the other thing is also that the Gulf state invested deeply uh, in the um, in the uh, in the uh, uh, infrastructure of Yemen. Um, so, uh, Kuwait spent uh, a lot of money to building schools, hospitals, and roads inside Sana'a and Taiz and and, and and elsewhere. And that kind of, of, of economical relationship and, 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 and free labor movement going into the Gulf continued uh, throughout the 80s. Uh, the major collapse, I would say, to that Yemen-GCC relationship was the uh, Gulf War. Um, that's mainly because uh, uh, Saleh supported, uh, when Yemen was uh, a member of the uh, Security Council, uh, supported Saddam Hussein uh, over his Gulf allies. Uh, that led to a huge resentment and anger from the Gulf states. Uh, they immediately uh, shut down any movement coming into the Gulf, and not only that, they sent back over a million uh, Yemeni uh, workers uh, back into the country. That created a deficit within the economy, uh, a deficit that actually Yemen until now still couldn't, uh, couldn't, uh, couldn't recover. Uh, moving forward very quickly, Saleh managed briefly to... Um, to bridge that relationship with Saudi, uh, but couldn't manage to, basically the harm has already been done. The Gulf War and, and Saleh just supporting, uh, supporting the uh, uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, 
that harm was already being done. So um, the Gulf countries in general couldn't get over the fact that actually their Yemeni ally uh, supported, uh, supported the, uh, the, uh, the Iraq invasion. Moving to 2000 and, uh, to, to, to quickly to, 2000 and, uh, to 2011 and, 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 what happened, uh, and what happened afterwards, uh, usually the relationship was focused on Saudi and then moving to other uh, GCC countries. Saudi funding directly the Yemeni budget, uh, sometimes with uh, a billion or two billion dollars uh, um, uh, a year to cover the deficit of the Yemeni economy, of the Yemeni, uh, the Yemeni yearly, uh, yearly budget. And this is usually money going directly to salaries. This is money directed directly through the, uh, through the, uh, through the central bank. Uh, the, um, the intervention of Saudi Arabia uh, into, uh, into the conflict, uh, which Jenny just uh, explained, um, the, the, the driving force behind, behind the conflict was a local, though there are local drivers behind the conflict. Uh, many, many people didn't see uh, Saudi Arabia intervening in the, uh, in the conflict because of the experience of how Saudi usually view their foreign policy. They don't have uh, uh, an active, uh, let's say, foreign policy that, would, uh, that, would, uh, uh, that could possibly in any way turn into a military, uh, a military intervention the way it happened in, uh, in um, uh, March 2000 and, uh, uh, 2000 and, uh, 2015. Uh, saying that, I might move forward to the uh, Saudi and the, and the Emirati networks working in the, uh, in the country. Since the beginning of the, of the uh, coalition, um, as Jenny just explained, those local actors fighting the Houthis and the Saleh alliance were already there. Uh, what the Saudis mainly did, they tried to outreach to those uh, local, uh, uh, local actors uh, mainly uh, the uh, opponents of the Saleh and the, uh, Saleh and the Houthis, and this is through various networks, uh, mainly through uh, a group of um, various uh, Salafi networks in the center and in the, uh, and in the south. Uh, some of those networks are associated to the Southern Movement, which is uh, a movement that started in 2007 calling for independence and secession from the, uh, from the north of Yemen. And also uh, uh, the uh, the Islah network, the uh, the uh, the Islamic uh, the Islamist uh, political party uh, in uh, uh, in Yemen. Um, saying that, uh, it it was clear through while we were doing the research that actually there were two parallel networks working at the same time. There were networks that were working directly with the UAE, and there was a different parallel network working with the Saudis. So some of the networks receiving fund and support from uh, from the Saudis, while the other uh, receiving fund and support from the UAE. Eventually, as the uh, war was was moving forward. The UAE network was mainly based in the south of the uh, south of the country. Southern Yemen mainly uh, was closer to the UAE, so there were various um, uh, groups associated to the to the southern movement mainly received funding from the uh, from the UAE, uh, and then Center Yemen was a mix actually in both in the cities of Taz, Center Yemen, and in Al Baydah. Uh, the networks received multiple supports. So you would have a group of um, one network receiving funding from Saudi Arabia and then another network receiving funding from UAE. What was very unique actually, sometimes those groups don't even talk to each other, uh, which reflects on maybe even the Saudis and the UAE don't talk into who are they providing support, uh, support on the ground. 
the update to what happened because we wrote this le- this paper in the uh, in the in the course of the summer while uh, when I did uh, the research on specifically on Taz. Uh, there was a group uh, that was funded by Saudi and another group funded by the Emirates. The funding, uh, the Saudi funded, this fund, basically the Saudi funding relinquished and uh, gave dominance more to the, the UAE uh, uh, funded, uh, funded groups. Eventually, um, even the, the armed and security forces who are operating in Taz receiving their salaries from the UAE networks. Uh, and we're seeing more and more uh, let's say uh, uh, withdrawing from the, the Saudis withdrawing from uh, supporting uh, their networks in the uh, in the center. Then uh, there was a shift. Then the Saudis focused their the most of their supports to the north of the country in the most of the tribal areas where the Saudis had historical relationships with the tribes there. Um, so most of the focus of Saudi Arabia turned to let's say closer to their borders and left the southern and the center uh, 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 groups uh, mainly to communicate and, 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 and work their relationship with the, uh, with the UAE. Um, um, uh, I think, um, I think uh, this is like the main development regarding, uh, regarding how both networks were, uh, were working. Uh, doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't, it's not clear how, how, uh, how uh, we're going to see a development into, uh, into um, the support of funding coming uh, into both networks working in the country. Supposedly they're working for the same goal and they're fighting the same, uh, the same enemy, but eventually on the ground it seems like they're not, um, they're not really working together. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Do you want to do... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say um, part of the part of the research we worked, we tried to cover the uh, drone strikes uh, in Yemen in the period of 2015 and 2000 and, uh, 2016. Um, mainly, uh, the reason is um, as the air campaign started, by uh, led by the uh, led by the Saudis. Uh, many people, uh, like at least the news of drone strikes, uh, uh, um, at least a little bit faded away. And uh, not many people uh, were talking about them. While the reality on the ground, the, the drone program continued, uh, similar to what was happening in 2014 and 2013 and, and, and before. Um, so in, uh, in, um, in that period, uh, we had... Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, 2000, the beginning of 2015, several airstrikes happening in the south, uh, uh, drone strikes, sorry, happening in the south of uh, south of Yemen, and in the center of uh, in, in the in the center of Yemen, mainly focused on the areas of Shabwa and Al and Al and Al Bayda. Uh, the uh, the interesting part is what many of the uh, the uh, the tribal forces, uh, even in Shabwa, felt there is. No form of uh, a governing body anymore in the in the central uh, the central state or in the central government that they can communicate or talk to, because the political development was Hadi was under house arrest at the beginning of 2015. He escaped to Aden, but it was clear that he lost his control over the intelligence security uh, institutes. 
Um, for many of the tribes, they couldn't communicate uh, or talk to um, anyone at the central government uh, 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 governments anymore, and the attention, all, almost all of the attention, was directed to the conflict, to the actual, um, to the actual, uh, actual war. Uh, we then witnessed a rise in uh, in uh, in the drone strikes uh, after uh, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula took over Mukalla. This is the eastern province of uh, of, uh, of Yemen, specifically in the period in May, uh, June, July 2015. There was a rise of uh, intense uh, uh, drone strikes. Uh, until eventually uh, the UAE led an offensive on uh, on uh, Mukalla, and they were able to take back uh, uh, to take back the um, uh, the city. Uh, drone strikes still continue. Uh, they uh, there were uh, many reported uh, drone strikes in Al Bayda and also in uh, in, in Ma'rib and Al uh, and Al Jauf. Uh, which raised a lot of questions within the local community. Who uh, are the Americans deal, dealing with on the ground? Are they talking to the Hadi government or are they talking to the uh, Saleh guys who are members of the former regime, of the previous, uh, of the, of the previous regime? Uh, which we could see a scenario of um, um, the U.S. Uh, talking to both, maybe to both sides at the same, uh, at the same, uh, at the same time. Uh, um, uh, again, um, the drone strikes in Yemen is not a new phenomenon. It started in 2002, and I think it was the first drone strike ever happened in, 2000 and, uh, in 2002. The main difference is that after 2011, the intensity and the number of drone strikes increased in a very significant way, that people started to, to feel it's getting closer and closer to residential areas, while the period between 2002 and 2010 were more focused on very deserted and remote, uh, remote areas. Uh, after 2011, uh, the number of drone strikes increased, and they were hitting literally inside villages, uh, in, sometimes in, in, in inside uh, uh, populated, uh, uh, populated areas. Uh, the, um, the, uh, the development happened in 2015 and 2016 when they started to hit even inside cities, like the city of, uh, city of Mukalla, the city of Ma'rib, which was also a new phenomenon because uh, we, had, we, we were seeing an, an, an increase beginning by uh, striking in remote areas, then in populated areas, and then now in, uh, in uh, uh, inside, uh, uh, inside uh, 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 cities. Um, I think um, that's it in terms of uh, in terms of drone strikes. <laughs> that's probably yes enough drones for <laughs> enough drones. Just to note, many of you probably discovered it, but in this excellent remote control report, there is a map on page nine as Hara talks fluently around Yemen's geography. That may be helpful for some to refer to that. Um, and now, in happier news, and rather remarkably, Hara is going to attempt to say something positive about Yemen. Uh, some potential to share with us. Yeah, uh, I think um, what I what I shared the um, Yemen Gulf uh, relationship, which had its ups and uh, ups and downs during the last uh, the last period, and then it reflects on how Yemen had its how how the region basically view Yemen, and then the relationship between Yemen and the and the and the and the Americans. I think one of the main problems is that its regional uh, allies and its uh, and its uh, uh, international allies, Western allies still couldn't view Yemen outside of the security prison. I uh, still view Yemen as a possible threat, a possible danger, uh, where we should keep constantly uh, in, a, in a leading an effort to contain, uh, to contain, um, uh, to contain that, uh, that threat. 
Um, when I um, when I had a, I had a visit to one of the uh, rem- very remote villages in uh, in Beida in the end of 2013 after a drone strike. Uh, the drone strike. I, I met um, an, an elder sheikh who his son and his nephew were both killed in a in a in a drone strike, and he was very much complaining about he was, he participated in the revolution in the uprising in 2011 and he voted for Hadi, and he was very angry and why, why, uh, why drone strikes are, are still operating. And when I asked him about what do you want, what are you looking for, were you protesting for democracy, he said, that, he said something that many of us, even, even the, the young generation, the people who protested, didn't really thought of um, for, for a long time. He said, I'm not sure that we, we, we protested for democracy. We pro- protested for good governance. And I think this is the main thing. Um, the, the Arab people mainly revolted for good governance. That's what they mainly lacked, and that's the, what they, many of, the, of these states lacked and couldn't provide to the, um, to the, um, uh, uh, to the people. Um, the, um, the Gulf remains for a period of many years as the Yemen main contributor, the main, main ally. Um, but... N- still couldn't get over the, the, the fact that Saleh supported Saddam in the 1990s. So it's still that possible threat, that potential threat coming from, from Yemen. And how can we stop and contain the flow of, 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 uh, of let's say, immigrants coming, coming, uh, coming, coming to the Gulf? Well, um, the, the, um, the reality is most of the Yemeni people want uh, a normal and stable, uh, stable life. They want a normal and stable relationships with their neighbors and with a, with a, with a Western ally. Um, and this is a potential of what we tried to lead in 2000 and, uh, 2013 during the national, uh, during the national, uh, national dialogue. Um, the local conflict, what we are seeing uh, right now, um, is not a new phenomenon. It happened before in the 1960s and it continued for seven, eight years, but eventually Yemeni people were able to get over that. Um, Right now, there is also this possibility. There is no reason why Yemen can't go over that, uh, that, that, uh, that challenge. The main thing is, it's time for the international community and its regional allies to view Yemen from a different angle, from the, how the Yemeni people were viewing themselves in 2011 and 2013 and moving forward towards a new country. Um, if we continue working with the same elites and the same groups, you're going to continue working basically with the same drivers of the conflict again and again. While there is a lot of potential, I would say, uh, with, uh, within the Yemeni people who are still um, out there and are still looking uh, forward for, uh, for, for a new country uh, and a new form of governance. Thank you, Barra. Let's have something a little more upbeat to share amongst all this. From that, however, we're going to move to Helen. And uh, I know you want to talk about the death toll and other issues. Yes, I'm afraid I'm not going to expand on the optimistic side of this conversation, though I would be only too happy to do so. So I'd first like to make a few brief comments on the paper itself. And I think it's important, you know, for people to notice that, I mean, this, what this paper is doing, which is really very useful, is providing, A, a lot of basic information on the military aspects and on the arms trade aspects. And not just that, but also going beyond that into explaining you know, how these things relate to the local situation and also to the international situation. I think those are the really very positive aspects of this paper and hopefully it will be used for by the judicial reviews and um, <laughs> the likes. 
And, you know, you've also gone into the local situation, which means you've addressed this issue of the external agents always talking in terms of counter-terrorism, counter-terrorism, and Yemen is nothing more than a base for a few terrorists. And I think, you know, the important part of looking at the details of the situation and the internal dynamics is really a very important side of it. Um, I, I, I think there's, I've got two small points that I have to make. One about uh, Al-Qaeda. I think that it would have been useful to be a bit more detailed on that and particularly also to focus on, it, on its relationship with the previous regime and possibly the current regime. But I think the main thing I'd like to talk about is you know, the death toll and also the, the future and the current humanitarian situation. Uh, the figures that they've used for on the death toll situation, which is about 10,000, are figures which have been used internationally and have been produced by the United Nations. And I'm afraid that I think they contribute seriously to the ongoing uh, lack of detailed and interest and concern for the situation in Yemen. Those figures refer exclusively to people who have been directly killed by military activities and have, been, have died in institutions where this information has been recorded, i.e. hospitals and existing and currently operating medical institutions. And it's worth noting on that one that only about one-third of medical institutions are currently still operational. So the reality of the death toll is far higher, not just with respect to people who have been killed elsewhere, but also it ignores you know, the, all the people who have died from lack of medication, from ordinary disease, and simply from hunger. I think, I don't know if, who has seen the BBC film that Nawal al-Maghafi did, but the doctor she was talking about there was saying, you know, why are they only counting the ones who are dying from being shot? There's all these other people dying. So I think one has to remember. And I have to wonder sometimes whether the fact that these other, you know, that this death toll is kept so low in official and in media is one of the factors that contribute to Yemen remaining this still very much ignored war. We know that the death toll in Syria and in Iraq is very, very high. Um, I hope that the one in Yemen is not so high, but I'm pretty much convinced that it's a lot higher than the figures were given, and maybe you know, Yemen would get more attention if the situation wasn't quite so, uh, if these figures were actually more realistic. And this brings me to the main point I'd like to talk about, which is the humanitarian situation, which is very much a consequence of the aspects that um, Barra and Jenny had discussed. Now, many of us know that prior to the war, Yemen was already in a very difficult humanitarian situation, that it had very high levels of poverty, that Yemen was already then dependent on food imports for the vast majority of its food. I mean, we're talking about basic commodities, 90% of wheat are imported, 100% of rice, tea, sugar, which are the basic uh, foods that people have. Uh, and overall, between 70 and 80% of food is imported. So the fact that people can't afford to buy the food was already a major problem prior to this uh, to the war starting. 
and the high levels of poverty were equally important and resulting from this situation. Now what's happened in the, since March 2015 is that the situation has got vastly, vastly worse because not only have shipping and other mechanisms not operated fully and whether one wants to call it a blockade or call it something else, the fact of the matter is that even if uh, some foodstuffs have arrived, and I did some research on the last six months, the last six months, for example, the amount of wheat that was imported was adequate and over the required needs. But the amount of fuel that was imported during this period was 22% of the requirement. So you're now talking about a situation where, yes, there may be the food, it may be arriving at the ports, but how is it actually reaching <coughs> to the places where it's needed? And there, again, we need to remember that over 70% of Yemen's population live in rural areas. A lot of these rural areas, even before the war, were very difficult to reach and very difficult to get to. And they were not on asphalted uh, dual carriageways or even single carriageways. They were very difficult to get to. Now, what has happened in the last 18 months is that massive amounts of the communications, of the physical communication infrastructure have been destroyed. Now, unfortunately, we don't have many photos, and this map doesn't give you much of the topography. But Yemen is an extremely mountainous country, and they are, you know, very difficult places to reach. If you destroy a pass that has, you know, 250 bends over five kilometers, and which are otherwise unaccessible, you know, the food's not going to get there, even if you have the fuel. Now, a lot of situations we have is where trips that used to take four hours, five hours, six hours can now take four, five or six days because trucks have to wait to get through a ravine and then go up on the other side and it's extremely difficult to do so. So this is, you know, one of the aspects that's having a long-term effect and which is you know, accelerating the situation that we have seen on our televisions in recent and on various papers in recent weeks of people very literally starving to death. Now, unfortunately, I can't actually finish on an optimistic note, unlike Baha, who did make a glorious effort on this one. But, you know, one of the major things that have happened, I think we talked about the military stalemate, but the military stalemate has resulted in, in, in a very a change, in a way, in the nature of the war. Uh, the so-called internationally recognized regime has realized that they're not making much progress militarily, so they've decided to operate in a different way. And what they have done has been to basically turn the Central Bank of Yemen into a complete standstill. Now, the Central Bank of Yemen was the one institution which continued to function effectively and with the approval of most, on both sides, and with the support of the allies of both sides for all this time. Now, while a central bank isn't actually, you know, necessarily a cash delivery machine, it is absolutely essential for, for example, wheat traders to get the letters of credit they need to buy wheat and to buy basic commodities. 
And the result of this move of basically officially moving the central bank from Samar to Aden, which has been done, to my information, against the views or in opposition to absolutely all the allies on all fronts, is that at the moment most people who are looking at these aspects in detail are expecting that in about two months' time there will not be any basic commodities left for people to buy, which means that we're talking about an extremely serious situation regardless of what happens on the military front. Now, I'm, I would like very much to be able to say that I'm wrong, and I would like very much to hope that the situation is not as bad as I've just described, but I've heard too many people who know what they're talking about saying this to really anticipate a much worse situation, and I think we need to take that into consideration. We need to also see, you know, and I think that's where the, the arms trade activities go and the judicial review go, is that they, if there is any possibility of having some serious impact on a political solution, it should absolutely, definitely be taken extremely seriously. And anyone who thinks they can do anything to prevent this disaster from happening should really be encouraged to do so. Um, I think that's enough. Maybe somebody has something hopeful to tell us. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you, Helen. Thank you. It was very sobering, but some very rich and thought-provoking material. Plenty for us to chew over, I think, now in the Q&A. We're all content to move on. Sure. So we'll open the floor up to you all. We have nearly 45 minutes left, so plenty of time. Um, do please raise your hand if you wish to ask a question, and please tell us your name and any affiliation if you wish. And please, could you also be fairly brief with your questions? We have quite a big audience, so it would be nice to get through as many as we possibly can. And I may need to, I will repeat some of the questions, so bear with me for that, but we need it for our recording of the event for our podcast. So let us take to the floor, and I'll start with the lady in the middle there, please. Thank you so much for this. very enlightening. Um, so I know this is fresh off the bat, but with the, the results of the American elections, do you think that we will start to see a clear path of what side the U.S. is on, and do you think that the U.S. is going to have more to say in the event, or do you think this is so not surprisingly, our first question is about the U.S. elections <laughs> and what influence might this have on Yemen? Who would like to tackle that? would you like to? <laughs> <laughs> volunteer a member of the audience to answer the question. No one can have a shot after. Who's going first? Um, well, Jimmy I mean, Moore. I have no. I mean, I have no idea. As Trump is such a wild card candidate. I just don't. I can't call anything, but. What one thing we were trying to do in this paper was look at the political economy of the arms trade, which is structural. And Trump is a businessman, so I don't see him walking away from business opportunities in the Middle East. I don't know whether he is going to be more... We tried to set this in the context of the Obama doctrine of a more realist foreign policy and the Obama idea that there should be no free riders. This is taken from an Atlantic magazine interview where he said, we're tired of like, our regional allies just riding on our coattails. They need to do more to help defend the security of the region. And then this is what we end up with. We end up with all the moral hazard of backing countries that have very immature military structures 
and very little internal systems for accountability and especially working with special forces where there's even less accountability. So um, in terms of the way Trump is going to develop this, there's been a massive increase in arms sales. That's really good for business, um, even though there's this moral hazard argument. I, I know he said a lot about uh, trying to modify the Iran deal and that that may pacify the Saudis to some degree because the Yemen conflict is happening within the context of the broader Iran deal. Um, but I, I am not a specialist on American politics and Trump has not said anything coherent on Yemen. I'm just looking. I'm just looking for the quote. Yeah. So I can't. You know, I don't know whether. I, I think. Um, I mean, when um, at a certain time when uh, I brought after we finished this paper, um, we tried to communicate with someone in the Hillary campaign um, who had even they didn't know much about Yemen, but they like they had a, a brief idea of whom are they going to invite from the State Department to, um, so to assess them in the, the foreign policy regarding Yemen. But this is on the assumption that I thought Hillary is going to win. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, it only came to a shock uh, today morning uh, when the results, uh, when we all woke up and to, the, uh, to, the, um, to the fact that Trump actually is one. Um, Trump, I didn't see any comments of him um, regarding Yemen. He only mentioned sometimes briefly that he would like, um, he's looking forward for a relationship with the Russians in, uh, in, regards, to, uh, in regards to Syria. Um, that might affect what's happening in Yemen, but it's not clear how. Uh, and I'm not sure actually that even Trump knows what he's going to do in Yemen, or anyone at the Trump campaign know. So. I mean, central to all of this is Trump's relationship with Saudi Arabia and how he chooses how to manage that policy exactly. portfolio. Mm -hmm. This is Noel Brahoni, who is an experienced Yemen specialist. And a former yeah, diplomat. Diplomatic background <laughs> as well. tell us more. I've seen a number of changes in the government in, in, in the UK and being a part of this. The point is fundamental into a stem change. So that uh, America will have this interest, I assume, in stabilizing Yemen. Primarily with a counter terrorist uh, agenda, but also uh, because of the potential impact of its uh, allies in the region, because those interests in supporting the, um, whether you call it commercial, etc., but the interests are quite deep uh, um, in supporting Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and I think that will, that, that, that will continue. Um, I mean, there, there may be changes at, at the edge. What may not happen, because I think always if we're looking at the GCC states and Saudi Arabia, it's a question interests and values, balancing the same, mm -hmm. balancing those and that. <coughs> that is something that there is some potential for change, but uh, I doubt it. I found, is, I, sorry, found a quote. I found a quote. I can't do American accents. And, but, uh, <laughs> I will uh, try read it. Try. Things are going to happen if I get in, but let's just sort of leave it the way it is. They get Syria, they get Yemen. Now, they didn't want Yemen, but you, but you ever see the border between Yemen and Saudi Arabia? They want Saudi Arabia. So what are they going to have? I don't know who they is, but that's they the is. problem. <laughs> <laughs> Trump did say, has said, that he would break or end or cease the nuclear deal with Iran. Yeah. How he would do that is another matter, but let's say he did 
yeah. in some way change that dynamic. But he also said that he's going to basically that. hand over Syria to the Russians, which is also in the favor of Iran. So I'm not sure that even Trump knows <laughs> what his foreign policy really is. <laughs> and if, if, if relations with Iran do become more, even more troubled, do you yeah. see any impact on Yemen? Well, I mean, the whole narrative, is, the narrative about this war is that it's a conflict against the Iranian-backed rebels. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the, the key... Salah's security structure and his patronage networks and his allies' control over the economy re- remained intact after he was removed from the presidency in 2011. Um, so when he formed an alliance with the Houthis, which... The Houthis had access to the elite military, the remnants of the elite military institutions in Yemen that were trained and financed by the West as part of their counter-terrorism drive. And they had not only heavy weaponry and equipment, but they also had expertise and technical ability. So the Houthis had access to what was left of the elite military infrastructure. Um, And they were much of what was initially reported as Houthi troop movements inside the country was essentially Houthis allied with the, the, the root of the Salah family military structure. Um, there isn't any conclusive proof in the public domain about the nature of Iranian engagement in Yemen. Uh, everybody that you talk to who claims to know anything will say that Iranian influence in Yemen has increased gradually over the course of the last decade and there was a greater increase after the 2011 uprising and again even in the last few months but certainly since the start of the war. This, this, the Houthi takeover of Sana'a was not an ideologically backed movement that was started in Tehran. This was a long, long, long history that goes all the way back to the 1940s and the 1960s in Yemen. It's a really long historical chain. And there's a lot of domestic drivers. The Houthis are an indigenous movement. Iran does play some role, but it is impossible to define it with any clarity or precision. And despite all of the news headlines about Iranian weapons supplies to Yemen, um, and I was on a panel in the UN last year that was responsible for trying to investigate some of these arms transfers. There is nothing conclusive in the public domain yet about the nature of Iranian weapons transfers. That doesn't mean that there aren't there isn't some kind of intelligence support or technical support. That there aren't there aren't there is some form of relationship there. But so in answer to your question, mm. Saudi Arabia's perception of Iranian engagement in Yemen has been central to driving this conflict. But the, the, relate, the difference between the perception and the reality is something that we can't define. And so therefore we can't define how the nature of Iranian engagement is going to change in the context of a modified Iran nuclear deal. Mm-hmm. But that the Saudis will possibly be more, passive, will be more comfortable with a White House that they see as more sympathetic to their interests. Um, I can just add the point is when we basically the argument we try to make is if you try to view Yemen as a as a as a proxy war between Saudi and Iran, you're really not going to understand much about the conflict. Um, the the actual driver of the conflict are local drivers. This is at the core essence of it, a conflict between local um, actors, um, and then. Later on, regional influence could play a role, with Saudi or Iran. But at the local, at, at the core essence of it, this is local, local, local actors. And as Jenny just described, at the at the heart of this is is the Saleh, is the Saleh regime, the remnants of the Saleh uh, of the Saleh regime. Um, so, uh, so this is if, if anyone tries to understand Yemen, he should start from the local level and then going up. 
Um, I think this is... Thank you. So for Helen, do you want to add to Yeah, no, I just want to compliment a bit what, what Ginny was saying, in the sense that, you know, if the Iranian deal collapses, the Saudis no longer have that excuse for what a lot of what they're doing in Yemen. Are you focusing that it's on Iran? But if they, but that, that the, but the reality of the Saudi concern is much more Saleh and, and the Houthis. So they'll find another way of, I mean, another they'll have excuse. to find another excuse basically for continuing. I don't know. Our panelists dealt with Iran, they dealt with Trump. What's next? Lady, right at the back, please. I just had a question about when you were talking about finding, engaging with the Yemeni population and how you use them to address some of the problems you're talking about with uh, distributing like, food and resources. Who are the like, reliable local actors? Who are you looking to engage with when you're trying to you know, have those conversations about peace and have those conversations about getting aid into Yemen? Yeah. How to engage with local actors bring food supplies in. Yeah, so um, in the uh, in the in the basically in page ten and eleven of the paper, we tried to talk about um, the um, each province um, in a just give a brief a brief description into what's happening. Um, while we are talking, for example, if you look into page eleven about the city of Marib, for example. Uh, this is one of the, the places where they, we say the government can claim it has actual, actual, actual control. Now, the reality is that whenever there is a government's actual control, it's mainly because of the local councils, the local governing bodies. And this is why uh, local drivers are m sometimes much more important than, than you looked at the national level or the, or the, or the regional level. So, for example... Um, if any attempt was tried by, by any of the, let's say, if, if, uh, UN agencies or uh, INGOs to work with the governor of Marib, for example, one of the main provinces, the governor of, of, uh, of Aden in the south, uh, the governor of Sana'a, at the local level, you could actually accomplish much, much more uh, than just dealing at the national level. Because uh, right now you have a situation where you have Sana'a, the capital, is no longer controlling the rest of the country. Uh, but at the local level, you have local councils and local governing bodies who can actually implement things on the ground. They have a, a powerful decision-making power, let's say, uh, which could be much more effective if you're trying to do uh, any local level in work on, let's say, security, uh, humanitarian work, uh, 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 even delivering services. Uh, once you decide, once an, an, a decision has been made to engage with local governing bodies. Yeah, thank you. Hi, sorry, um, Emily Knowles from the Remote Control Project. Thank you so much, by the way, for all of the hard work that's gone into this. I know that writing about events as they develop on the ground is always a massive struggle. Um, and I, for one, found it a really useful exercise in trying to unpick the multitude of actors um, that we just don't hear about quite often in the, in the UK media especially. Um, I had a question. You mentioned um, a little bit the incoherence of the kind of goals of the, a lot of the international actors who are on the ground or engaging in Yemen. And I was wondering whether you had any more thoughts about the long-term implications of these incoherences for Yemen itself. Um, for example, if the Saudi intervention is strengthening Islamist movements, if, it, if it's strengthening Muslim Brotherhood-based movements, what, what are the implications there? If the UAE's engagement is strengthening some of the movements in the South and some of the separatist movements, what are the implications um, for Yemen going forwards? And if this international engagement isn't necessarily serving 
Yemen's own and Yemeni's own interests in kind of a peaceful, secure life, whose interest is it serving? If there's a, if there's a bolstered southern separatist movement, if there's potential for, for more um, strength in Islamist movements, if Al-Qaeda is under control, um, what do you think the long-term outcomes are, I suppose is the short way of saying quite a long question. Apologies for that. Thank you, Ellie. <laughs> Who would like to tackle us? <laughs> I start, and maybe if you want. Yeah. I mean, I think that maybe I just the, the incoherence here in this in this conflict essentially is that the U.S. are backing the Saudis and the Emiratis. They're giving the Americans technical support and arms, and they're training the Emirati special forces. The Saudis are running an air campaign in the north. They don't have any troops on the ground. The Emiratis are have special forces on the ground in the south. The Emiratis and the Saudis have different political objectives in Yemen. The Saudis are allied with Muslim Brotherhood and the Emiratis perceive the Muslim Brotherhood to be a threat to their national security. So their regional policy is about trying to minimise the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood. So ultimately the American military is capacity building two armies to fight for two different outcomes in the same country. Um, and so that is not a coherent military strategy. It also doesn't fit very well when you dig down underneath the rhetoric of the UN Security Council in legitimising this conflict. You end up seeing that these two coalition actors are basically negotiating with different Yemeni elites for different political outcome above the head of the UN Special Envoy. Um, and and I think that's part of the reason why the technical level talks that the UN Special Envoy is overseeing can't really make any progress because progress needs to start much higher up in the political pyramid and there's really no one with a mandate to mediate at that level. And what does this mean on the ground? It means that although the Yemeni National Dialogue uh, decided that they wanted a federal system and there is now a draft constitution which uh, endorses a six-region federal model, the country is all fragmenting in slow motion in front of our eyes and that process is going to continue. So by the time there is a final peace agreement and a political settlement, many of the lines will already have been drawn on the map that then have to be incorporated into a redrafted constitution, mm-hmm. I think. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think I agree. Uh, I think it's, it's mainly um, when, I was, when I was basically this vision of viewing Yemen just through a security prison. So if you talk to the Americans, the main concern, the main concern is Al-Qaeda and how can we keep... Uh, having our drone program running. Um, for example, they were so happy when the Emirates led the offensive uh, on Al-Mukalla to drive Al-Qaeda outside of the, uh, outside of the city. But at, when you look at the long-term vision, it's like we don't have a plan what's, what's going to happen next. Um, and I think this is where many of, uh, many of the Yemenis are more, uh, are more, uh, more concerned at the, at the, uh, the local level. Uh, now, even at the, at the, uh, the Saudi-led coalition campaign, the main enemy, let's say, it's a short-term goal, I would even describe it. If you're only fo- you're focusing on Saleh and the Houthis, well, what's going to happen next? Um, if you have been supporting two different groups, or maybe more than that, for totally different, uh, different reasons, you're going to have maybe after that, then how can you work all of those groups working together? And do they actually really respond to a national government? Or actually everyone is just uh, have their own guns and their own, uh, their own, uh, their own capacity? And where does the U.S. play in that? Actually, the American concern, can we continue to have a, 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 a drone program running without any uh, obstruction? Um, and, 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 and I think this is when it comes to 
looking looking from looking to Yemen from a different angle. It's time to look at Yemen from a different angle, other than just a, a short period security threat angle. I'd just like to add simply that you know this has unleashed a, a situation which will cause long-term fragmentation, and that. This isn't really being addressed by anyone really adequately because people are assuming that there will either be separation in return to the previous borders of pre-1990, and which is, I think, in all our views, very unlikely, um, and that we're talking about a what is going to be a much more fragmented situation, which will pre which will be very very difficult to address and I think that you know the external agents i.e. The, the US and the other powers who have been involved um, have taken a very narrow-minded view based exclusively on their own interests which have completely ignored the needs and the problems of Yemen and Yemenis. Thank you Helen. Ginny, something you'd like yeah, to add? So basically the Salas and the Houthis are too strong to be eliminated from any political deal in the north yeah. And they, they have to be included somehow. Salah's network, if not Salah himself, and the Houthis have to be included in some way in the political settlement in the north um, because like, 19 months of conflict, 20 months of conflict hasn't dislodged them. Um, the south is not going to accept any kind of agreement that sees the Salahs and the Houthis remain in power in Sana'a. So that problem needs to be sorted out at some point. Um, the UN doesn't have the capacity to, to negotiate at the different levels that it's needed. It doesn't have a mandate to negotiate at the elite level. But I've just been talking about with the Saudis and the Emiratis. It's working at a political technical level, but it's struggling to find a political space in which any kind of agreement can be achieved. And it doesn't have the resources to work at a subnational level as well in order to mediate all of these contacts. Because even when a ceasefire is agreed at the, U at the UN level, it's not actually holding at the local level because local actors don't necessarily see themselves as bound by it. And on top of all of this, Yemen has never really been a country where sectarian identity has been a particularly strong element. And because of the way that the Houthis have... Uh, justified there. It's a very political conflict in which many actors are using sectarian justification, which is really in increasing the degrees of sectarianism. It's increasing the, it's destroying a lot of the social fabric that's really held Yemen together in the absence of a strong state. Um, and that problem is not going to go away anytime soon. Thank you. We have a question here from the So my name is uh, Tim. I work for the research group as well. Um, what do you see as the um, strategic importance of Yemen for the West um, in terms of obviously the UK has a colonial presence there? So is it the same now or has it changed? And how do Yemeni people see Western interference in their country? And secondly, is this also, I've read one article, and I think it was in the Irish Times, about how it's connected to power struggles in the Saudi elite. So to what extent they need to between like successes for the royal family, so to what extent is, is that part of this game? Well, the second element is certainly there's, there's yeah. three in there so why don't you start as the, as the Yemeni more, on the panel shall we take more questions let's roll through those because there's three in that I think Not sure. Sure. tell us how a Yemeni sees western interference um, I think um, um, 
uh, there are different levels of of, um, of, uh, of interference, um, um, and it depends on um, when and where um, and how many. Uh, it, it differs basically on when, where you ask uh, you ask these questions. Um, so, for example, after 2011, after the UN uh, brokered the uh, the deal. Um, the former UN envoy had a more um, a closer, um, um, uh, I'd say, uh, impact. So he would go. He, he went to most of the most of the provinces in Yemen. He would meet with many local actors. Um, at a certain time between 2012 2013, there was that level of appreciation to the efforts of the UN. Uh, so people were kind of, uh, kind of, uh, kind of happy uh, to uh, to talk and meet with the uh, with uh, the UN envoy or any of the uh, any of the uh, 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 countries who are brokering the deal in uh, in, uh, in in Yemen. Uh, <coughs> After, after, afterwards, I would say this um, it, it didn't continue at the same uh, at the same uh, at the same uh, at the same level. Um, in general, today, I would say many people don't view as the interference in uh, in between like the interfere basically international interference in general as a as a as a positive uh, as a positive interference. Um, and, uh, and 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 mainly that's because me- the main reason is that. For, for, for military reasons. Uh, when the, the only interests, uh, when you ask about the strategic importance, this is the, one, of the, one of the issues. I think most of the countries don't see Yemen as a, uh, a strategic, important, uh, important country. Um, it's not close to Europe, so it's, refugees really have to travel a long distance before they can arrive to the shores of, uh, to the shores of Europe. Um, it's not a country that's producing uh, nine or ten million barrels of oil, uh, so that it's uh, uh, so uh, the only uh, as, as again the, the only way the U.S. have viewed Yemen for a very long time is through Al Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. This is a place where Al Qaeda has said it has base, and how can we keep containing that uh, that threat? Anthony, anything to comment? I think I mean just. The one and only bit of strategic issues, other than what uh, Baha has just mentioned, is the Bab al-Mandab and the mm-hmm. control mm-hmm. to the Red Sea. I mean, apart from that, mm-hmm. I think there's... Yeah. I mean, Baha has covered the territory. <laughs> Thank you. We have a question and a question there. Any other questions? Anyone from the back have not spotted? Fine, you, sir. And then we'll Thank you. Um, thank you very much for for me to understand, better understand the local powers within the conflict going on in Yemen, would you please shed some light on the on Islam and the Muslim Brotherhood over there in Yemen? Is it more like is it a central organization like it is in Egypt and uh, from the rest of our world, or is it more or less a fragmented organization? Where does it stand from the networks of the Emirati network and the Saudi networks? And what sort of role is it playing right now in the conflict? Thank you. That's quite a self-contained issue. We'll take the second yeah, question. Hi, Stephen. I'm a master's uh, complex study student here at the LSE. I'm a question about Saudi's interests in Yemen vis-a-vis monarchical survival. Uh, it's something that this gentleman up here kind of touched on. I was hoping we could get to it. Um, uh, and, and considering what you're saying, Barbara, about your speaking with people and how they're not necessarily interested in democracy, just in terms of good governance. Is there a model here of a good government's non-democratic system that would appease the Saudis in their sort of uh, apprehension about 
maintaining monarchy as the, uh, the um, governance style choice of the call. Thank you very much. Would you like to tackle Isla? Okay. Um, I think in in uh, in relation to Islah, um, Islah is um, specifically in Yemen is quite unique to the other Muslim Brotherhood networks in the in the in the region. Uh, Islah is mainly a coalition. Um, you could say compare it to the any conservative coalition, um, say like conservatives in Britain or in any other country. It's a coalition of conservative forces. Um, get to, who got together in 1990 and formed this political party called Islah. Uh, the base of the Islah are the Muslim Brotherhood members, uh, but you have tribal forces, uh, and you have uh, religious uh, religious scholars who have many followers also at the uh, at the at the uh, at the same time, and you have some businessmen who who have their businesses running in the country for some time, but at the same time they are more conservative. Uh, than than the uh, than the others, so they say like they see Islam closer uh, closer uh, closer to them, and uh, they can run their interest. There's a circle of interests uh, interests together. So it's a more of a coalition uh, coalition of uh, tribal business and and and, and, and military uh, and political uh, uh, institutes coming uh, coming together and forming this uh, this uh, political party. Um, uh, I always say this: if you if you try to, if anyone wants to understand Islam, look also at the GPC. It's mainly like a reflection of how um, big political parties operate in the country. They form a coalition of many forces and combine them together, and they manage a way of how can they run their interests together at the same at the same uh, uh, at the same time. And this is the reason why sometimes you'd see some people in the GPC could switch sides and go to the. Uh, and go to the Islam, or vice versa. Uh, it depends on where the interest lies at different times. Uh, so, um, so, so, so it's not in a in a similar way to to the Egypt Muslim Brotherhood model. It's uh, it's uh, it's kind of it's kind of a model that is that is how, in a way, you could say specific to Yemen. Uh, to to, um, to Yemen. I think this is in terms of, uh, of Islam. Do you want to talk about this? So uh, I, I mean, the, so the head of uh, the, the head of the Islam Party was one of the closest allies of Salah, also in his regime. So there were three power bases inside Salah's regime: Salah's family, General Ali Mohsen, who was head of one of the big military divisions, and then Sheikh Abdullah Al Ahmar, who was the head of Islam, but also one of Salah's closest allies within the regime, mm. and the conduit of Saudi patronage to Yemen and the, the tribes. The biggest tribal yeah, for decades. Tribal kind of a paramount sheikh of the Hashid Federation. And sheikh Abdullah died in 2007, and his sons then took on many different aspects of his portfolio. And the family went into open, essentially into open confrontation with Salah over the distribution of resources and privilege inside the regime, and used the street uprising in 2011 as a, as a way of increasing the pressure on Salah to have more of their own share of the resources. Um, so they, they were simultaneously part of the regime and also part of the opposition structure. And they have also been part of, the, part of this conflict now. So, but it's still part of an elite array. There's a rolling, basically this is a struggle within Yemeni elites for share of their portion of control over resources and Islam are part of that. But I mean, the part connected to the Saudi question mm -hmm. um, in that 
the the three big beasts of Saudi Yemen policy all died in the course of the last sort of five, six years. So you had Crown Prince Sultan, who was managing this tribal patronage portfolio, um, and then Naif, the interior minister, and King Abdullah, they all died since the 2011 uprising. And with that went 50, 60 years of institutional knowledge. Um, they had the personal ties, they had all the knowledge going back to the last revolution in Yemen in the 1960s when the Egyptian military came in and supported uh, the Republican military structures. And the Egyptian planes were bombing on the Saudi side of the border. Um, so this, all this died, all of this kind of received wisdom within Riyadh and a lot of the relationships and it was all and there was drifting a bit really I think in, in the last few years and King Abdullah for one reason or another put the Muslim Brotherhood on the terrorist organisation list, King Salman comes in and overnight you have a complete reversal of policy so all of the Yemeni actors who were trying to calculate their relationship to one another based on Saudi's position because Saudi would provide money then had to completely recalibrate their position. And that's partly part of the mess, basically, is that people are still trying to work out mm -hmm. that contradiction. Mm. I just want to add a small thing, which is that, um, <coughs> you know, there's the big difference to me between the Islah party and the GPC is that Islah, in addition to what you've just said about the elite, is actually a political party which has some kind of ideology. And it has a lot of popular support from people who are, you know, ordinary people who are not part of the elite. Whereas the GPC was founded prior to 1990 when political parties were illegal. And it was basically set up by Saleh. And he just brought together all the influential people he could bring together from anywhere of any type and sort of threw them all in and said, you are the GPC. And it officially became a party after 1990. And people only really joined that because of access to jobs or to various means. I think the GPC, there were attempts to turn it into a real political party. I mean, that's what Dr. Abdelkarim Ariani was trying to do, to turn it into a genuine, genuine political party. But he failed for, basically, he wasn't allowed to do this. So I think that's, uh, that's the difference between the, the Islam, because I think the Islam has much more of a base, and in particular, you know, non-tribal people. In the, in the mm. Tashid area, the, the, it's the tribal base, but in other areas, it's, it's more ideologically based. Base. Right. Mm. I think also, in addition, Al-Islah, uh, when you compare it to the GPC, is much more, um, their organiza organizational structure is much more stronger. And they for in a way the more that when they have uh, organizations or civil society that are attached to the Islam, you'd see it reflects they have a better organizational structure, they have better uh, impact they have because of the of, of, of how in a way the party is the party in general is is uh, is, is operating. Uh, and many people think just because Abdullah bin Hussein Al Ahmar, who uh, was of the main founders of Islam, the founder of the political party Islam. Uh, uh, was from Hashid, the tribal area in the uh, in the north. That actually, this is where the Islam have their base. The reality is, as Salem was mentioning, most of the, the biggest support of Islam is in the center, uh, not in the uh, not in the uh, not in the north. They have more of a tribal influence in the north, based on uh, their tribal uh, allies' influence uh, influence really is. So, yeah. thank you.
We have a few minutes left if there are any more questions. Does anyone? Sorry, I don't know if Oh, the monarchical aspect. I yes. suppose they didn't really. You got them there. What, the Yemen's not a monarchy? That Yemen is not a monarchy. The, Sa- the Saudis' plans and the Saudis' monarchical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, uh, I mean, uh, if it, it's, um, when you compare how King Abdullah uh, was dealing with, with, with Yemen, he managed to run a fair, fair of, a, of, a, of a stable relationship with Saleh and then uh, a similar relationship to with Ali Mohsin and Abdullah bin Hussein, uh, Abdullah bin Hussein al-Ahmar. So it's not really, I don't see this as other thing as a, this is a republic versus a monarchy, although this is one of the, big, one of the reasons why the conflict was happening in the 60s. But at, by the time I was moving, um, the, uh, the patronage network for the Saudis inside Yemen was quite, was quite working quite, uh, quite fine, especially after uh, Ibrahim al-Hamdi, the former president, uh, 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 died. Um, but um, the, the, the major shift, I would say, is after, the, after uh, King Abdullah died. So uh, King Abdullah was, in a way, able to manage that relationship. Uh, and you have also some strong um, influential figures in the country, especially Abdullah bin Hussein al-Ahmar, who was able to maintain the, also that relationship at an elite level between him and Saleh. Uh, so basically his sons wouldn't go in conflict with the sons of, uh, of, of, of Ali Abdullah Saleh. But when Abdullah bin Hussein al-Ahmar died, uh, and you have the rise of, the, of, the, of, uh, of, his, uh, of his sons, and some of them are, uh, are uh, members of the Islah party, um, and this is when the clash happened with the sons of Ali Abdullah Saleh, when Saleh was appointing his, uh, his, uh, his sons. Um, later on, uh, this is why I said many people didn't even see Saudi Arabia intervening in, in Yemen. But I think it had also, this is my point of view, uh, it was m- m- one of the main reasons that King Abdullah had a different policy than, than, uh, than King Salman. It's more of the, 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 the policy of King Salman and King Abdullah, not, not really about a monarchy versus a, versus a republic. Thank you, Bana. Nice to have a final call around the room at the back. Anyone else? Then our final question is... <coughs> Thank you. So that's a question. It's more a clarification. Um, the, you can look at Saudi intervention in 2009-2010, um, which did happen, and it's very specific. Um, but there was quite a lot of chat that that was covered in Sultan, uh, Sultan rather, trying to position himself for the succession vis-a-vis the Nayef. Uh, and there is quite a lot of talk that the um, Saudi um, operation in Yemen is connected to um, the, the positioning of uh, Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Nayef uh, as to who will take over in the next generation. Um, whether that actually comes off or whether it's, it's a very high-stakes bet, which unfortunately the Yemen people are caught up in, um, who knows. Thank you, James. Any final closing comments, observations? More cheery notes? Um, I can say something of the 2000. You're talking about with the Houthis, when they intervened with the with with Saleh against the Houthis. No, when, when, when yes, yeah. Um, Mohammed bin uh, uh, wrong. Khalid bin uh, Khalid bin Sultan. There, right? He was giving press conferences with the guns in the background and, and very much high profile, just as Mohammed bin Salman was at the beginning of the conflict before it started to. Um, uh, we'll move on, shall we? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the main, um, the main, the main difference is that you had, you still had uh, King Abdullah was able to manage that. So, um, if I compare the difference, uh, there wasn't this uh, 
national rallying inside Saudi for this the same way as it happened in 2000 and, uh, in 2015. There was some of it happening, but it wasn't to that uh, to that uh, to that level, and it was mainly. Uh, mainly the communication between the relationship between King Abdullah and Ali Abdullah uh, and, and, uh, and Ali Abdullah Saleh. The difference is that King Abdullah was able to also had his uh, relationship with the, with, the, with the other networks, including the Houthis, uh, who he, by the way, invited their leadership in, 2000 and, uh, in 2010. Uh, one of uh, Abdul Malik al-Houthi's advisors told me specifically that he went... To, uh, to, to King Abdullah and they he said we, we solved the whole problem there was like we don't have any beef with the Saudis anymore um, and that was in, 2000 and, uh, in, uh, in 2010 I seem like this is a bit of a difficulty right now um, if I compare the, uh, the, the both, uh, both, uh, both scenarios um, in, uh, in, in a way uh, Abdullah was able to understand the tribal structure in Yemen and how to run uh, the uh, negotiations and mediation, and, med and mediation. He had the, his people on the ground, able to run the mediation between him and the uh, and the uh, and the Houthis. Uh, while the situation right now is, is is different, and mainly it's because also the relation between the local actors. It's 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 not anymore 2010. It's not really even anymore 2011. The situation is the conflict is much more hard. Uh, most much. You know, much more, yeah, much more bigger. Uh, the say the amount of blood being spilled is much more. So uh, I think this is the main, uh, the main difference. No well. one can call the outcome of Saudi succession struggles. I mean, mm. no one knows, right? So um, everyone's just trying to make sure they're backing every horse in town. And the American government is just as factionalized as all these governments we talk about in the Middle East. So, you know, the defense industry has its relationships with the Ministry of Defence and so I don't think anyone wants to make a judgement call on that at the moment. We'll have to come back for another event to tackle Saudi politics on another night. Before we close I must thank a couple of people. Thank you to Remote Control, not least for rushing this off the press to get the report here for you tonight, freshly minted and also thank you to Sandra for organising the event. Sandra puts in all the hard work that makes these events happen and Sandra has been campaigning for a Yemen event for some time, so she's very pleased that Yemen was finally tackled tonight. But most of all, oh, before I do close, um, I need to plug our next event for which registration is open. Come back for Algerian nationalism and Berber identity with Marisa Foy from the University of Geneva on the 23rd of November. Registration is available for that. But lastly, most importantly, to Helen Barajani, thank you so much for giving so generously of your time and expertise to this splendid event. We're very grateful. Thank you for coming. Thank you.